Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of From the Deep End. It is good to be with you on this, what is it, Wednesday morning? Kind of lose track of the, the days when you do this day after day after day, but I think it is Wednesday morning, and we are looking forward to uh, another good day of Bible study here together. First on um, um, uh, From the Deep End, and then, uh, well, actually, just two programs today that I can remember. We have From the Deep End here from 8 to 10, and then, of course, we have LaBeth Brewer, uh, and the mindful soul coming up, uh, starting at two o'clock this afternoon. So make sure you're all part of that. Um, the, um, um, the mindful soul program, that's what I was trying to think about, um, has a, a new addition today that I, I think we hope is going to be a real nice addition to the things that LaBeth is doing with us. Uh, of course, LaBeth is, um, oh, I forget what her certifications are, but is, is a therapist. There's so many different ways to be certified for therapy, but, uh, uh, and, uh, that's kind of been the basis of the mindful soul talking about the mind and the soul, all that kind of stuff kind of tied together there. And, um, and she is going to be offering a session following each episode of the mindful soul. Um, and it's a session that is at least semi-private. It's limited to our, to our, the subscribers of all of our different platforms. If, if you haven't by now, you should get a notification here in the next uh, next little bit sometime this morning uh, with all the details about the Zoom meeting room that it's going to be in. Uh, it's going to take up, take place, I think, pretty much just right after she uh, gets off the program this morning or this afternoon, rather. Um, and it just be a, a, a small group type of uh, session with a therapist um, that you can ask any questions or, or, or that kind of thing and just have some discussions with her. Um, and I don't, I don't suspect there'll be that many people in the room, given the number of people that are uh, available for that kind of thing in the middle of the afternoon, but uh, that may actually be a benefit to it. Um, so if you've got some questions that you'd like to ask, uh, again, it won't be streamed uh, out on Facebook or YouTube. It'll just be in a private Zoom room. Um, we certainly invite you to come and participate in that. Uh, and um, and if um, you um, know somebody you think might want to be in that, I'm sure there's something we can do to work it out. Um, Maybe the simplest thing would be if, you, it's, if it's worth $2 a month for you, sign them up. You can gift a subscription to Locals, uh, and that's $2 a month uh, over there at Locals. And then they will get a notification about um, um, about the uh, room every week when it goes up, and then they can participate in it and uh, just be a part of it that way. So it might be a good way to invite people in to um, uh, join the Digital Bible Study family a little bit. But um uh, there's some other options out there as well, but that's probably the easiest and least expensive way to get that done. Uh, and we would invite you to uh, invite others into it. So that's what's going on uh, today. Of course, here on From the Deep End, we uh, do two things. We uh, ha have a conversation every morning uh, for the first hour of the program. And that is just based upon the comments, questions that you put. Oh, I guess I should go ahead and put that up. Since we're going to be talking about it. Uh, the comments and questions that you all put in the um, um in the um, in the comment section from Facebook and YouTube, those are the ones that show up here on the screen. Uh, I'm trying to do something here. Apparently, I can't talk and do something at the same time. That's beyond my ability. There we go. Um, but if you go ahead and do that this morning, that's where we will 
draw the content of the lesson from uh, for the first hour. And then, of course, in the uh, second hour of the program, we will turn our attention to um, uh, to a continuation of our study of uh, First Peter. So we are still in kind of the middle section of, of chapter one, hopefully knock out a few verses today on that good study as well. So uh, looking forward to it, looking forward to the program today. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and being here and uh, participating so well uh, in the show that we do here together each morning. So let's see what we have. Uh, a bunch of good mornings there from everybody. Uh, uh, the regular crowd, Joyce and Jonathan and uh, James, Melissa, Deborah, Teresa, Vicki, uh, Dolly, uh, Travis and Jeannie and Denise. Uh, I don't know if I missed anybody in there. Johnny's there. Good to see you, Johnny. Uh, Jim, Jim and Sue. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, just uh, thank you all for tuning in. And let's see what we have in terms of a question. I only see one question in the uh, uh, block to start with. Um, Jonathan, in a way that only you could do. <laughs> Thank you, Travis. I'm not sure if that's, uh, well, yeah, actually coming for you. I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure if that's a um, compliment or not. Uh, but uh, could you uh, explain um, Colossians 1.24? Well, that depends on what Colossians 1.24 um it says I quote one twenty seven off the top of my head. Oh my my, my system rebooted last night. It's annoying when it does that because now I have to load up all the programs again. Hold on, give me a second. It's loading. We can get the screen share going. Um, give me a second here. There we go. Getting closer. Um, and we need Colossians 1, 24. There we go. Uh, and turn on the screen share in a way that works for us. Let's do it this way. Uh, turn off that. And there we go. Colossians 1, 24. Uh, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling, filling, <coughs> filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions uh, for the sake of his body. Uh, that is the that is the church. Um, and I don't know if this is the, in a way that only I could do it, Travis, but my uh, simple, um, quick explanation of this verse is, um, it's, it's obviously some kind of metaphor, uh, figurative language about it. Um, probably a description of Paul's attitude about what his role is. I don't know that this is a strong doctrinal statement um uh you know is is there truly anything that is lacking in christ's afflictions in the absolute sense um for the sake of his body um I, that i don't think that's to be taken as a as a strong you know position of, of paul's doctrinal position on it i don't think that's the point um i think it's um, probably his attitude, his disposition of how he has never, how he has not attained Philippians chapter three. Of course, y'all have the several statements he makes about being, you know, chief of sinners, being unworthy and, 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 and so on. I've got a couple, three different times where he at least hints at that, says that kind of language about himself. Uh, it's, it seems he was, he always felt like he was a debtor, uh, and had a debt to repay. Uh, maybe for the maybe 
you know, as, as he says to Timothy, I was, I think the King James is why I was injurious and I was a blasphemer. Um, and, and as Acts says, he, he wreaked havoc of the church. I don't think Paul ever forgot that. Uh, and, and I think that that kind of statement's always in the background here. Um, so I don't have a real strong, clear answer on this one because I, I just think it's more of a, um, it's probably not the right terminology, but I think this is more of an, an emotional answer than it is a factual answer. Um, maybe, uh, you know, attitude or an, an attitudinal type of um, statement um, expressive of his mindset more so than a, um, a, a doctrinal statement. So uh, that's just kind of how I read it is that um, uh, he, he rejoices that he has the um, opportunity to, you know, um, you know, flesh here. I take, if that's part of the question, flesh, I just take to be exactly that his, his body is suffering. Read second Corinthians 11, his body has suffered over and over again, Philippians four, same idea. Um, and, I think he's probably talking about he's filling up what is lacking in his in the comparison to what Christ gave for the church. Uh, Paul rejoices for the opportunity to uh, take on that uh, that struggle for himself would be would be my um, basic take on the uh, on it. So uh, others may have more uh, definitive a- a- answer to it, um, but that's um, that, that's that's about as far as I go with it. I I, I don't know. I don't know what more to do with it other than something along those lines. So I hope that was helpful, but that's, you know, that's not one that I've got a real strong aha type moment on for you. I just, I just don't, because I, again, I just don't think that's, I don't think that's the intent of the verse. I think it's an expression of Paul's heart more than if his um, state, statement of the, the doctrine that should be, you know, more than a doctrinal statement, statement of the heart, more than a statement of the doctrine. Um, so, uh, let's go to the next question uh, right there at the top of the screen. Uh, again, from Travis. Could you talk about the practice of children's church to miss the left of the Lord's Supper and the authority or lack of authority in regarding it? Um, oh, actually, excuse me, I missed one. Uh, Jonathan's actually comes before Travis is there. Um, how are women preserved through childbearing in First Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 15? Okay. Um, and sort of the context of, of that, well, the, the, the close context goes back um, to where uh, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first than Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, uh, love, and holiness with uh, self-control. Okay. Um, it's a good question, by the way. Uh, well, this one obviously deals with the, the, the role of women. Um, I, I do believe that this is talking in a, in this, in the general context here. If you skip down to chapter three and verse 14, 15, Paul says, I'm writing in the hopes that I will come to you soon. That's what verse 14, verse 15 says, if I delay that, I want you to know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Uh, I believe that's a very similar statement to what Paul says t- to Titus in chapter one of Titus, where he says, I left you in Crete to set in order those things that were lacking. That's what's been Paul has been doing, especially since the beginning of chapter two, where he begins to talk about the nature of prayer. Um, and he says that in every place where these prayers are offered, then 
the men should pray, and that is the word men, male, on air as opposed to anthropos, uh, that the men should pray. And, 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 and so since this is dealing with the, the place where prayers are offered in, in, the, in the house of God, likewise women adorn themselves in modest or respectable apparel and not putting on with braided hair or gold or, or costly attire, okay? Well, that, that's, that's not in general. Uh, There's nothing wrong with a, with a woman getting dressed up and, and going out, um, um, you know, but in, in, in the assembly, to, to draw attention to oneself in any regard, um, is is going to be um, um, a um, uh, a distraction at the best from uh, from the worship assembly. This is talking about uh, uh, inside the house of God, not outside of the house of God. Um, so the, the, you know, obviously there are still constraints of just general uh, modesty and, and so on principles you can draw elsewhere for, elsewhere from Scripture. But this First Timothy two two and three is not talking in general. It's talking about the assembly, or at least within the house of God, because this is also true. I do not permit a woman to to to, to I let a woman learn quietly and all submissiveness. I do not permit women to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Well, uh, in in the in the job market in the secular market, there are going to be plenty of times where a woman might be in the position of having to teach a man something about her field, something about what she knows. Um, that virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, in, given her field, certainly is going to have something where she she would be able to teach a man how to do something. Uh, that this, this is dealing with how you behave yourself in the house of God. Okay, and I and we don't have, at least I don't believe, a departure from that in in verses 14 and 15. Okay, this is still right there within that context. Okay, um, and. Uh, I, that's how I read this this entire passage. That it is dealing with how one behaves himself in the house of God. Now, specifically for Timothy, as you then scroll from that into the setting the, the setting up of worship, the proper uh, um, um, uh, behavior um, and management of that assembly of the of the house of God, both the male and the female within that within that environment, and then you roll right into that. And sometimes these chapter divisions get in our way. Uh, he didn't change topics when he got to chapter three, and he said, "Timothy, uh, when you find somebody who wants to be an overseer, this is how you know whether or not they're qualified." Um, and same thing with the deacons. The deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Okay, um, I, I I believe the deacons were much more, um, um, much more um, involved, or the, rather, the preachers were much more involved in the selection and appointment of elders and deacons in the first century than they are today. Um, today, especially once an eldership is already in place, it is typically uh, an elder-led process. Uh, in the first century, the two examples we have of it being established, at least beyond the apostolic establishment of it, like Acts 14, where Paul does that in the various cities of you know, Lystra, Derby, and Iconium, uh, and some of that region. But um, the two examples we have of it being done uh, would be would be Titus and Timothy, and in, in in both instances, it's the preacher who was told, "Here's how it's done, and and, and set in order what's lacking. This is how you behave yourself." So I do believe that the preachers in the first century were much more heavily involved than they are today. Um, but point being that what we have in chapter three is just a continuation of chapter two. We are organizing the, if not the assembly of the saints, you know, to the Sunday morning at worship hour. Certainly, the activity of the church, the organization, the 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 behavior 
of the church, the life of the church. That's what's being organized here. And so I take 1 Timothy 2 in that context, that here is a position where, um, um, or here, here is the manner in which women are to conduct their, themselves in that environment, okay? Uh, it is not to be at the head, uh, to, to have a headship role in the house of God. That is not her role. Uh, which, by the way, interestingly, I don't know if you've seen the, seen any of this or not um, over the last, let me just turn that off for a second, um, over the last couple of days. If you have not been following the news coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention um, over the last couple of days, you should uh, take some time to find it. Um, I've been following it some, from some guys that I that I follow on Twitter, um, and they uh, there was a several issues on the table. I don't know if you heard about the sex sex abuse uh, report that came out uh, a couple months ago that was uh, a very damning of the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, that was on the table. And also obviously some of the corruption charges going back and forth on that. Um, our, our old friend, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but a former preacher inside the Lord's Church who's now at Saddleback Church, which is apparently part of the um, uh, Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and they have appointed women pastors and so on. Um, he he rose he raised a stink over there apparently about um, uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism, uh, and then also uh, about uh, uh, ordaining quote unquote female pastors, which of course the Southern Baptist Convention up until recently has uh, opposed. Um, and so um, uh, they are going through. And well, they elected a new president last night. I believe the guy's name is it's Brad um, Barrett, maybe Brad Brad. Man, I I can't remember it. But apparently, uh, to use political terms to describe it, he's he's part of the establishment. You know, uh, they had somebody got a, a Tom Askell, I think his name was the was the. I say he was the 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 Trump. He was the upstart outside the establishment type type candidate that the. The conservatives were trying to get in, uh, and the establishment inside the Southern Baptist wanted this other guy, and it, it it appears that the Southern Baptist Convention is going to give ground. If not, they're going to study it for another year. They have a um, a research committee. I forget what they call it, but a, a committee on on that that they're going to continue to study this topic for another year, apparently. But it looks like the Southern Baptist is about to give up grounds on, on to give up the ground on women pastors. But just the uh, political intrigue. And, and as I put up a post on Facebook the, last night about just uh, um, how about the wisdom of God and not creating an organization like a Southern Baptist Convention, because it's important. Um, they control the purse strings. And if, if, um, um, if they say that women need to be ordained as what they would refer to as quote unquote lead pastors, uh, and you're a Southern Baptist church, you have to be willing to do that. If you don't, you lose all the benefits of being, and, and a lot of these churches get funding and support and, and so on. Their, their connections are tied to this convention. convention. It's, a, it's a, lot of, um, a lot of power um, that, that, that they have given to, the, uh, to the, the leaders of this convention over their churches. So big stuff going on over the Southern Baptist. It's, it's not going well for those who believe in any kind of constraint of the biblical text. Uh, Bart Barber, thank thank you, Christine. Bart Barber was the one that was elected. I was in the in the ballpark. I knew it was a, I knew it was a double B, uh, but Bart Barber Bart Barber is the guy. Um, so, um, at the, anyway, that does relate somewhat to the topic we've got here. Is 
this is this is one of the texts in which obviously you know they they call people pastors and of course they don't understand the distinction between a pastor and a preacher um but you know uh, i was going through twitter last night looking at baptist making this argument uh he's to be the husband of one one wife and ruling his own ruling his own household well and so on uh and then it was funny because they were just saying well that's what the bible says right there well there's other things the bible says too that i don't think they they follow through as well as best they can but they're going through the same same discussion, and and we are to to a degree. Uh, we by, by that I mean inside churches of Christ, we're having the same argument, probably not to the same degree, but we we are at least in our own in certain circles, we're dealing with the same thing uh, about the role of women, and that is not going away. By the way, I mean that's going to get worse and worse in terms of the pressure that's going to be applied to elders and, and elderships and churches as a whole, congregations as a whole, as we go forward. Uh, the uh, the, the 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 move toward uh just um uh the inclusion of everybody into every role is is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger um but let's actually get to your point to your question jonathan she will be saved through childbearing and so on um you, you made the point earlier i saw that jonathan the the uh, new american standard has the word preserved there and that might be a better word um this this, this you know as i've said in the past quoting uh, mr spock you know uh, whatever is uh, uh, impossible, uh, once you once you once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains must be the answer, no matter how how improbable. Okay, uh, goes here too. All right, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Okay, that is that is not how women are saved from their sins. There are so many other passages which talk about how women are saved from their sins. In fact, it's they are, it's the same group of passages which talk about how women are how everybody, men and women. And yes, that's all there is, men and women, how they are saved from, from sins, okay? So that is not what this passage means. This passage does not mean that she is saved from her, from her sins through childbearing, all right? That would be very, very bad if, if a woman heard the gospel after the age where she's capable of bearing children uh, or if she has some kind of physical malady that prevents her from bearing children. That would be very bad, all right? <laughs> or if she's just single, if she's just single, because that would mean she would have to get married in order to have the children, or else she would be guilty of fornication. And that would also, you know, see the problem there? That, that's going to lead to some very difficult, uh, uh, put, put her rather into a very difficult uh, situation. So preserved there might actually be a, a, a more, I don't know if it's a better translation, but certainly more helpful translation in terms of understanding the passage. Um, I do think it is interesting, the shift in the, um, the pronouns that you have in, um, verse 15, and it's, it's, it's an interesting shift and some commentators, I, you know, kind of go a little bit different on it. Um, you, you know, the, uh, the woman was deceived. So that's singular yet she, and that's singular will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Um, who is the they? And that's one of the questions the commentators have about the passage. Who is the they? Um, and it is, it, is, it is a shift in, in pronoun. If you look at whatever Greek skills I have, if you look at the Greek text, it does shift the pronoun, the number of the pronoun. She is plural. They, or she is singular rather, and they 
is plural. So Jonathan puts up, they, they refers to women as a whole. That's, that's possible. That's one view. The other view, Jonathan, would be you just had a reference to children in the previous word. Okay? Um, it's possible that the they could refer back to the children that she's bearing. So she, singular, a single woman, and then more generally, if she continues in faith, love, or, or if, you know, here's an individual woman, but what's true of the individual woman is then true of, of women collectively. So she will be saved if she fulfills her role, and all women will be saved in that or preserved in that manner, and so on. So that 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 is a possibility. The other one is she will be preserved, to use the New American Standard translation, through childbearing if the children continue in faith, holiness, and, and, and self-control, which would which would then talk about not her, uh, which would then talk about her. Um, um, uh, fulfilling the role of, of the of the nurturer and teacher uh, in the um, in in the home. So and and those are two two separate interpretations of the verse. I've heard both. I'm not actually sure which one's right. Um, I, I I tend to lean toward the second one, but if you lean toward the second one, you then have to be you have to understand the meaning of of you you can't take this as an absolute. This becomes more proverbial than it does straight out doctrinal. It would become, what is it, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child on the way they should go, when, when it, when, way she go, when he's old, he will not depart from it. Something along those lines. Um, that's a general truth. It's a proverb. It has its limits, of course. The, the, the child has their own self-will. The child has their own uh, um, uh, volition. Uh, you know, they can do what they want to do as they grow older. And no, sometimes no amounting, no amount of training could um, um, could deter them from the path that they're going to go down no matter what you do. That's entirely possible, okay? Um, so it's more proverbial. Obviously, if, if it is referring to the children, it seems to suggest that her continuation, her preservation inside the body of Christ is contingent upon her children developing faith, love, and holiness and the ability to be self-controlled. Uh, not dissimilar, by the way, particularly in the Titus account in Titus chapter one, to the qualification of the elder, that he has managed his own house well with all dignity, dignity, keeping his children in submission. So the responsibility of a parent to control the actions, particularly of a child, is is a biblical thing. Now, um, so that that's a possibility of the verse. Um, Obviously, she cannot be. She cannot be um, um, held responsible for the full lifetime of that individual. At some point, that child has their own responsibilities. So, if you're going to say that they refers to the children, you do have to keep in mind then that there's a limitation to how far you can extend the application of that phrase. Otherwise, you begin to violate a whole host of other biblical passages. Uh, Ezekiel 18. While Ezekiel 18 talks about the father and the son, the son will not bear the iniquity of the father. The father will not bear the iniquity of the son. The same would be true of a mother and a son or a mother and a daughter. Uh, that, 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 that passing of iniquity upward or downward through the, through, the, through the generations does not work. Okay, It's not biblical. Um, and so there's a point at which if this is a reference to the children, that obviously has to come to an end. You can't do that any longer. 
All right. So um, if it's about her, if she or she and the they then, if it's about the women in general, obviously what's talking about her, her here is her continued continued faithfulness. The reason I tend to lean toward the second one is because obviously the plural, and I don't like that you have a singular pl- pronoun and then a plural pronoun. That, that's if you know if you did that in a in a in a, 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 a research paper you're handing in, in in college, and your professor was good with grammar, uh, he, he would or he or she would complain that you just that 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 would become an ambiguous reference, because who is the they if you're referring to she? So you wouldn't, in a well-written sentence, you wouldn't do that. And the Bible has a whole bunch of well-written sentences. So I, that that would troubles me, the first one. The second one is, um, if if she is going to be preserved by having faith, love, holiness, and self-control, what does childbearing have to do with anything? Why couldn't the sentence just say, yet she will be saved if she remains faithful and loving and holy with self-control? That would be That would be exactly the same sentence. There would be no reason to add through childbearing into the sentence. So if you took, if you just struck it from the from the record, the meaning of the verse would be exactly the same. Okay, but when you put it in, it has to have an impact. And so I lean toward the second, which says they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self control. That that's the that's the reason I'm over there with it. Right. Um, so she will be saved through childbearing if. The children grow up in godly manners, in a godly way. In other words, I just think it's talking about making sure you keep, you stay within your role. All right. Her role, particularly in the house of God, is not to, to, to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She's to remain quiet. Yet there is a position where she can actually uh, engage in mentoring and teaching and training and growing, which would be through the influence that she has upon her children. So she is not to be somebody devoid of the ability to teach. She is not to have, she's not excused from the responsibility of helping others find faith and so on. She absolutely has a position and she is uniquely qualified to fulfill that position. There's nobody who can teach a young child these kind of things better than a mother can. Uh, I think I think mothers in general do it better than fathers, particularly with very young children. Um, now that's not a universally true statement. Obviously, when you're talking here with a broad brush, you're gonna you're gonna find exceptions to the rules. But in general, when they are especially young, that they 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 you know they nurse upon their mothers uh, upon their mothers' laps. That they the, the early days of their training. You know who 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 is it that is usually reading all the all the books to the child, and when the child is looking for a, 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 a comfort and so on, they they they, they run to their mother. I mean, uh, I know it's not mother, but we had we had our youngest grandchild over here uh, the other day, and he he hurt himself, and I picked him up. Julie was upstairs, and he was just having none of it, just none of it whatsoever. When I was trying to console him about getting hurt, until I took him upstairs. And handed him over to his to his grandmother and it was Mimi and and he just snuggled into her just immediately and just started feeling that, that there's a bond there particularly between a, a a mother or the woman and the young child that that a man just really struggles to to replicate. Uh, so I think it's here talking about her fulfilling her role. 
uh, within the home, and then more more broadly here within within the or maybe more narrowly here within the house of God. So she finds her 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 place not in exercising authority over the man, but in the nurturing and the growth of the, you know the implanting of love love holiness and and faith and, and self control in, in into the into the children of her home. So obviously there are women who, as we said earlier, don't have children yet. There are women that cannot bear children. There are women who come into the into the Lord's church too late in life to have children. So again, this is somewhat proverbial. It, and, and so this is not a you know not a requirement that you know you have, you have to hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and if you're a woman, have children. <laughs> you know that that that's not what this is saying. Uh, Paul is talking here about behavior within the house of God. That's the broader context of First Timothy two and three, and I think you would do well to leave it within within that scope. So even within that community, she has a role that she can play, and that is not the teaching of men, but here I think primarily the teaching of um, of children. Okay, um, let's see if there are any comments on that before I get back to um, dealing with um, um, Travis's question from earlier. Um, um, yes, Johnny, the um, I believe third person plural. I believe that is what you have for the they in. Um, in, in if they continue, I believe that is a third person plural pronoun. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, I believe the, the, the she is a third person singular pronoun. So that would get, then I believe the translation there is done properly. Um, Christine asked, could this go back to uh, uh, Genesis 3.16? Um, it could, it could. Um, I, you know, there's, there's a problem there in Genesis 3 with the, the headship of Adam. He's not doing his role. Uh, why was the serpent ever allowed to talk to Eve in the first place? Um, and so there's there's a lot more that could be explored there. But uh, the some of the things that are uh, uh, put upon the woman, pain through childbearing, her desi- desire shall be toward her husband. Um, some of that language I think is is would be in connection here, especially since you see the connection that Adam, that Paul makes. Adam was formed first, then Eve, uh, which is worthy of m- mentioning here. Whatever First Timothy two is to put, uh, uh, restri- restricting the women from doing, sometimes people will say, "Well, that's just Paul dealing with cultural norms." Some people even accuse Paul of being a, a misogynist, or so on. No, Paul makes this argument based upon creation order. So it's not Paul's personal preference. It's not that he is a misogynist. It is not that it is b- bound by uh, you know uh, 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 Roman or Jewish culture. No. The reason for this restriction has to do with the creation order. And then obviously the, the, the order established coming out of Genesis, uh, the garden in Genesis chapter three. So Christine, on some level, that is in the background of this passage. Absolutely. Um, uh, Travis says the, uh, the word for saved, preserved can also be made whole or do well. Uh, her authority isn't in the church. She is made well by her family authority and being shown, shown in godly children. And that's maybe a more succinct way of, saying what I took 30 minutes to say. So um, um, I think that that's that's pretty good. Let me just get Deborah's comment down there as well. Um, could, could it have to do with being taught with being taught our part in the Great Commission? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that that is that is the first mission field that exists. And that is the home. Um, you know, if we would just uh, and I know this is an impossibility because, uh, again, children have their own um, um, their own abilities and their own responsibilities, their own free will, as I said earlier. But if we would just do a better job of keeping children 
that are born inside the Lord's church, or you know, you know what I mean by that. Obviously, not born into the church, but born within the community of the church. If we would just keep them in the church, um, we'd we'd be a lot better off in terms of um, uh, a church growth. Uh, a lot of our churches, if if we would just do that, would never struggle with uh, membership. Uh, it, it would it would uh, it would absolutely uh, we'd have enough people to, to to fill the pews. Problem is, we're not so good at doing that. Um, and part of that problem is, if I can just get off on this for a second, um, our reliance on um, universities. Um, I, I, my, my daughter is, and this is Jonathan 101 at the moment, so this is whole, whole cloth Jonathan 101, n- no biblical basis behind this at all, just my straight up opinion. But my daughter is homeschooling her children right now that she started that with the pandemic. And she has, as far as I know, has no intention to send them back uh, at least anytime soon. She's doing the whole homeschool thing with the co-ops that help people out and so on. And I applaud her for that. I wouldn't want my children from kindergarten to graduating university, if I could avoid it, anywhere near the public schooling system, public education system. And there aren't but three or four private universities that I would begin to trust raising, te- teaching, uh, uh, teaching my, my children at this point. They, they are, uh, seems they're just cesspools. They're just cesspools. Um, and so, if we, if if <clears throat> if godly mothers and and at some point godly fathers need to be involved in this process wholeheartedly too, if we would do, um, um, if we would do that better. Uh, we'd have a lot less, we'd have a lot fewer uh, churches that are struggling to, to keep the doors open. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So ladies, you have, a, you have on some level, you, you are the first line of defense against the world in, in terms of defending the church because you, you are the ones that God has changed, charged with, the, particularly with the younger children, care, caring for that generation. Uh, and it is in your lap that a lot of those, uh, th- those early truths are taught. So uh, you don't have a lesser rule by any means. You might have, you might have the, uh, um, you might have the 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 primary role uh, in that regard in a lot of ways. So, uh, I love y'all for what y'all do, and and uh, I absolutely uh, uh, encourage you to keep on doing it. I know most of this audience are probably past that age where you uh, you do that, but um, uh, maybe your 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 daughters and or their granddaughters do that can do that as well, and we encourage them as well. Travis, though. Back to his question. Um, could you talk about the practice of children's church, uh, the dismissal after the Lord's Supper, and the authority or lack of authority in regard to it? Um, here again is is you know Travis. It's one of these things. that's kind of kind of um, um, tough to um, to talk about unless you have a specific. Because here's what we've done: one, we've created a practice. That, that is, okay, what it is. And two, we've given it a name. And that name could mean a lot of different things. So like you said, I have, you say here, dismissing the children after the Lord's Supper, okay? That would imply this is a practice being done on Sunday morning, right? Um, the church I preached at in Katy, Texas, had a children's church. I don't know. I don't remember what we called it. I don't think we called it children's church, but we had a quote unquote children's church, but it was on Sunday night only. Sunday morning, kids were in the assembly. All right. Uh, place where I'm about to start preaching in Rockledge, do the same thing. 
uh, Sunday night. Uh, we have something they call Onward Christian Soldiers. Um, and it goes out, kids go out on Sunday night. So the Sunday morning assembly, everybody's there. Uh, there are places that do it on both. Okay, well, and there are places now that don't even have Sunday night service, so that would not, not apply. But they do it on Sunday morning, and you're right, normally after the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, I've seen it done in different ways, even in the in the places where where people have it. Uh, I've seen it where the um, the going out into the, uh, the children's church again is is playtime. It's it, it it's straight it's straight up playtime. Um, maybe they play some Bible games or something, but the kids are not being trained in any way, really, to participate in worship. Um, but the uh, the the church where I preached in Katy. Um, the room in which we did our, man, I wish I could remember. They're going to be, they're going to be mad at me for calling it children's church. Cause I, I remember that was a thing. You didn't call it children's church. What did we call it? Jim, you were in the audience earlier. Don't, do you remember what they called it? You were still out there, Jim. Do you remember what they called it? Cause I can't remember, but whatever it was, um, in that room, they actually had, I don't think, I don't think you can, I don't know if you can buy these or if somebody made them. I never asked but they had little miniature church pews. They had little miniature church pews lined up like you would have in an auditorium. And they took the kids back there and they they did the singing. They, they did a little mini worship service. Now it was abbreviated. And I think there were some breaks where the kids did get up and play, you know, short attention spans and all that, but they actually had, they actually were training for worship. Okay. To me, that's probably a different, a different thing than a lot of them that I've seen. Um. Uh, so you tell me, you, you tell me exactly what you're doing, and, and if I were, you know, if I were the preacher there or member there, I might have different opinions about it. I know the argument against it. Okay, it is uh, what is it? First Corinthians. Um, is it First Corinthians ten or eleven? Um, you're talking about it can't be ten. It's got to be eleven, right? Got to be eleven. It's got to be eleven. Talking about the Lord's Supper somewhere. I think the King James uses the language when you all come together in one place. Uh, I don't want to take the time to try and find that um, on the screen here because I'd, I'd have to scroll through uh, and find it. But if 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 somebody could do that, I think it's First Corinthians eleven, and I, I'm pretty sure the King James uses that language. I don't know if the other translations do or not. Uh, but if somebody wants to find that verse, that would be helpful. And the argument is about now we're having a divided assembly. Okay. Um, the divided assembly. And so you have people who are not uh, part of the assembly. So the church has technically not come together into one place. All right. How are you going to define one place? Um, And is the person not in the one place because they're in another room? You know, I, I, I know that's not, always a problem because uh thank you travis first Corinthians 11 18 and 20 you know if you, you try to take that literally um uh you know the the non-institutional brethren there, there's a there's a vein of non-institutional brethren that not only does not believe in um um uh, children's church they don't even believe in bible classes because the church comes together into one place and even during what we would call the bible study hour what we do is we segregate into graded classrooms and the church is no longer in to get together into one place. So they have their, their they have an anti-Bible school. Now they still have a Bible school 
they just all meet in the auditorium. It's a one-room schoolhouse. And from the, the nursery all the way up. But most people, for most people, that's not an issue. And we don't we don't have a problem with a quote unquote divided assembly. Okay. I, I've been in buildings um uh when I was at the Memphis School of Preaching uh during lectureship week. They would sometimes have an overflow crowd. Uh and the students being the um people, you know, we were low on the totem pole, I guess, uh, uh students and then others we'd be sent back into the fellowship hall and they would uh, use the cameras such as they were back in the early nineties to stream. I say stream in the nineties, but it was a closed circuit TV type thing where they broadcast the, uh, the, the, uh, 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 the happenings of the auditorium into another room. Okay. Now we were still participating in the same service, but by that, by that definition, we were technically not gathered together into one place. Uh, we do it every week with with nurseries. Mothers take their children out and and leave them in the nursery. Sometimes they stay in the nursery. Some days, sometimes they they don't stay in the nursery. And typically, what you have in those settings is you have either a speaker, or maybe these days you you do have the YouTube stream up, and you are um, participating in the um, uh, uh, in the in that in the worship assembly by by having the uh, the stream on. Okay. And have you ladies ever been in one of those settings where there are multiple people in there caring for babies in the nursery, children in the nursery? Uh, it, it would certainly never be the case, never be the case that the volume might get turned down a little bit on the sermon that, during that time. And it would certainly never be the case that y'all would chat some, right, during that period of time, that y'all might actually start talking back and forth to each other at some point, because I've never had occasion to be out in the foyer or so during a, uh, there was one of the churches I preached at, I believe it was Avondale, that the the nursery area, which had a speaker in it, so you could hear the assembly. Um, I may have had occasion to be in the foyer from time to time, and, and I would hear the noises coming out of the nursery area, and let's just say they weren't all babies crying. <laughs> there was other, excuse me, other stuff going on there some conversation happening going on in there. So certainly that would never happen. My point being is it, guys walk in the parking lot for security. We excuse people all the time from the one assembly. So if, if your argument is wholly based upon the thought that adult members, and that's the problem, it, the problem that I've, the way I've heard people talk about it, the problem they have is not that the children are being removed from the service. Now, they, they may not like that, but they don't have a doctrinal problem with the children not being in the assembly because children aren't part of the assembly, technically. They're not members of the church. Okay, the church, the assembly comes together. They're not members of it. They don't need to be. So there's no doctrinal problem about where the children are located. The argument I have always heard is, you're taking adult members, members of the body, and separating them out and dividing the assembly. That's the argument I've always heard. And my point would be is we do that all the time anyway. We already do that. Every church I've ever been a part at, based upon the needs of the building. And these days, if you don't have somebody out in your parking lot, if you don't have somebody in your foyer guarding the building during the assembly, you're foolish. Because what you know? You say, well, that with the stuff you see on the, on the news, it'll it'll never happen here. That's what everybody else said until it did. One day, it'll never happen here 
is going to happen somewhere, and that somewhere might be your church. You you better have some some people guarding the building, guarding the assembly, making sure nothing silly goes on. Uh, you should. If you don't, you need to. Your church really needs to stop and talk about security. Okay, but we do it. My point is, we do it all the time. So I don't I don't have a doctrinal problem with it. Now, that is not to say I'm in favor of the practice. Um, I prefer the children to stay in the assembly. I think the best way to teach a child how to worship is for them, I don't know, to be into be into the worship. And then that solves the problem about where, where are the parents and where are the teachers of the children's church. It solves all the problems. Just leave them in there. Okay? Um, and... I under, I, I, and I, I do understand. I mean, back, back in the 50s and 60s, we didn't need this because most, especially in churches of Christ, most of our churches were rural. Uh, we didn't have any real large, you know, well, we, we, we did have some, but, 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 but our, our, our base was, was smaller rural churches, always has been. And in that setting, we had a cry room, we had a nursery. We had somewhere sometimes to take the kids or, or they would just, mom would just, you know, walk outside with the kid until the kid calmed down and bring them back in. We took care of that problem. And by the time, by the time that children got to be five, six, seven, eight years of age, the, the kid had already been in worship since from, from infancy. Everybody knew how to behave in church because everybody was already in church. The problem today is that when we bring somebody into the church, a lot of times, they have no background to church in general and certainly not to churches of Christ. Their children don't know how to behave. And so now you have an eight or 10 year old who has no training, no background. And it is not a, it's not an infant crying in, in, in his, his or her mother's arms. It is a, it is an eight or 10 year old playing on a, on a tablet or playing on a phone or making all kind of racket sitting next to somebody who's trying to worship. I understand the motivation for, Hey, this person, this child is not getting any training about how to ha- handle, how to act in worship. Let's create an environment for them to do that. I'm not even saying that that's necessarily a bad practice. I get it. Um, and I don't know so that I have a doctrinal problem with it, that I could prove that there's a doctrinal error, or at least not in a way that does not, um, uh, does not um, uh, violate or that we don't violate in some other way. Okay, um, so I don't know that my my answer to that is wholly doctrinal. Um, I will tell you this: uh, we do it, like I said, on Sunday night at, at Rockledge, where I'm about to start preaching, and uh, my daughter does not send her children to the. We call it, I said earlier, onward Christian soldiers. My daughter keeps her three kids with her because she wants to train them herself. And uh, as far as I know, the people at Rockledge don't have any problem with it because you know it's, it's none of their. Frankly, it's none of their business. They're not, they're not charged with training my daughter's and, and son-in-law's children. Manny and Amanda are charged with doing that, and they're choosing their way to do it. So if you make it obligatory, I got a big problem with it. Uh, I, I don't like it. I, I will say this. Um, 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 I don't like it um, on Sunday morning at all. I, 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 that to me... I don't have a real, like I said, I, I can't prove that it's wrong. At least I don't think I can prove that it's wrong, but I really don't like it on Sunday morning. Um, Sunday night, okay, I I can live with it on Sunday night. Just don't make it uh, obligatory. So um, um, 
Uh, let me see what we've got here. I have lots of comments going on there. I don't have time to get back to them all. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much y'all are going to disagree or agree with me on this. I need to bring that over. Let me turn my screen share off first. Oh, it is off. Okay. Let me bring that over there. I can read it. Um, hold on. Um, let me scroll back up through here. Um, um, some of that on homeschooling. Um, um, some of that still on homeschooling. Uh, Trish talks about um, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, there were the men and there were the children involved with that as well. Uh, I'm certain, certainly there were. Uh, there, there were uh, in in that setting. There would be. Um, um, Johnny says, uh, I believe having children's church confuses the child. Parents must teach their children to work at home and how how to act in worship. And you know, in in, in, in general, Johnny, I agree with you. Uh, I, you know, that's why I you know I've never tried to organize one. But as I said a couple minutes ago, um, part of the problem, part of the problem, I think is, um, as I was saying, you know. When you were in a when 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 churches were Bible Belt old school South East churches, which is what we what Church of Christ primar, primarily has been has been, you know, in those rural communities, your parents went to to the local Church of Christ in the neighborhood. They brought you, and now you have kids, and you're bringing them too, and you all living on the same land, and you've got grandmother, mother, and, and child all in the room, and there's a history about how you train a child to worship. Uh, we've got some people at Rockledge who have come into the church and have no clue, no clue what's acceptable, what's permit, you know, what the, what 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 the community standards are, and so on. The parent has no clue how to train a child in worship because the parent's never been in worship, uh, and that's why I'm not that's why I'm not quite a hardliner on some of these things because I, there there are settings, and that's why I said in the very opening of this. You know, when, Tra when Travis asked the question, what I need to see, what I need to know is, instead of telling me what about children's church, because quote unquote children's church is not in the Bible. There's, there's, no, there's no text that I can go to to prove it or to disprove it. I, I, am, I am twisting whatever verse I, I use to make that case. So what I need to know, if I'm going to give you a definitive answer, what I need to know is I need to be in your church and I need to see it. I need to see what exactly is going on. I need to understand the motivations behind it, and I need to understand the actual practice. And that's the beautiful thing about congregational autonomy is that we can do those things. Each church within the confines of Scripture has the ability to go out and solve their own problems. So in principle, Johnny, I agree with you wholeheartedly. But are there settings where that is, for at least some people, impractical? I think there probably are. And can a quote-unquote children's church solve that? Maybe. Maybe. But I'm going to try and leave it the best I can, leave it up to the individual churches that, uh, that uh, uh, are handling it. And like I said, the church where I preached in Katy was a very conservative church. They were more conservative than I am, which is one of the reasons... I'm not there anymore, <laughs> um, but um, uh, and they they had a form of children's church. Well, I never said a word about it. I just there are bigger fish to fry, and I I don't I don't think they needed it actually. Um, uh, I don't know why they had it because they 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 had the facilities, they had a, a a very good nursery type setup, they had everything they needed to handle it, and I don't know 
I don't know why they did it. I never even asked. I just, it was just, okay, that's what y'all do. I'm going to go out and do the Lord's work in other places. And, and whether, whether or not I would do it didn't seem like a, an, a, a, an issue to raise. Um, but, and so on. So the, anyway, let me keep going since we're, we're, where we got, I want to get this wrapped up because we're right at the top of the hour. Um, I just think those who, who could be pricked in their, in their heart by hearing the truth delivered in mass to the sermon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and now you're dealing with the, you know, obviously some of the children and some of those, you get some of those tweeners, you know, at what age do people stop going to children's church? That's, a, that's an issue. Um, but, uh, it's the same, it would be the same thing with like, uh, ushers, guys doing security guys, you know, somebody doing this, 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 this class, a separate, you know, if you use the same, if you, so let's say you use the same man to, to provide security for the church every week. Well, then that man is never going to hear a sermon because he's always out in the parking lot. He's always, he's always uh, in the foyer or he's out walking the parking lot, whatever. He never actually gets to participate in worship. So while I think he's doing um, good things, he needs he needs a break. He needs to be rotated in and out. And so I, I would I would absolutely do that as well. Um, um, teaching them to behave in the assembly, we can't let the children rule the race. Uh, I, I, that is, that is certainly true. And 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 you know that's that has always been my preference as well. Um, um, Deborah says everyone in the congregation needs to know how to defend the congregation, even if all they can do is use. Oh, that that different topic. That's absolutely true. Um, I told the guy that was doing security when I was preaching at Katie, because I know we had two dozen people packing. I know we did. <coughs> um, um, I said, could you could you somehow arrange to make sure they're all sitting on one side of the auditorium? Because I would hate to have some kind of crossfire thing going on <laughs> if, if anybody ever broke in. If you ever try to break in and, and disrupt the services at the Katie Church of Christ in Katie, Texas, Bring it large. You're 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 going to need some body armor, and you're going to need a lot, a lot of rounds. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's going to get ugly for you if you try to do that. Um, let's keep going here. I'm trying to get 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 caught up with you. Um, I just keep remembering an early Christian woman telling me never to start something that you have to undo later. And I, I assume if you're talking about children's church, there there is a, there is a potential issue there. There is, and, and I'm not saying, and that's why I'm not a fan. That's why I'm not saying it's not. A, I'm not a fan of. Them. Uh, is because if you're not careful, you might start setting precedents that lead to things you don't want to. Uh, absolutely. Um, Johnson, what on earth is the thing with the lampshade on it behind you? That is not the lampshade on it. That is actually a bike. That's actually a bike. Um, we are in the process of packing up and moving, so I don't know if you've noticed my background has changed. And right there is where... I Right there is where I'm currently storing my bike. So uh, that's what that is. So it's actually the handlebar is just right in line with the post of the lampshade. So the lamp, and it looks like the lampshade sitting on top of it. So that that's what it is. Uh, it's past the top of the hour here. Let me try and get caught up as best I can. Uh, Valletta. Um, um, parents have to be trained, too, to, to calm their children during the assembly. Many just sit there and think it's cute. Oh, absolutely. I've seen lots of people who think it's cute, but... Valletta, that gets touchy. Boy, that gets that gets touchy. Um, uh, and that needs to be handled with a lot of grace, a lot of discretion, because oftentimes the parents need that 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 need help in terms of dealing with their children in the assembly are not, you know, they haven't been Christians for long. So uh not just anybody should be engaged in that. That needs to be handled with a deft touch. Um and and I would say 
as I can generally, oftentimes the people that are the most eager to go and talk to those parents are probably the least qualified to do it. And you can hurt feelings and cause people to walk out that church and never come back if the wrong person broaches that subject. So leadership needs to get in front of that and handle it um, in some way and, and so on. Uh, Melissa says, uh, I prefer children remaining in the assembly too. Uh, youth are isolated from adults a lot, youth group doing their own thing, et cetera. Long-term effects make it hard to, for some to relate when they are older to sit with the adults. And that is concerning as well. Um, I, I would, I, I certainly am not anti-youth minister, but I would much prefer, um, uh, you know, that that 22-year-old youth minister really doesn't know a lot about marriage. That 72-year-old uh, elder uh, who's been married for 50 years, he knows a lot about marriage. And particularly with older, you know, older teen, teens as they're about to head out into the world, I'd rather have that 72-year-old elder talking to my son about how to treat a woman than that 22-year-old. And don't tell me he, my, te my teen won't listen to him um, if, if my teen has been raised well and that elder is truly the, the man that we think he is, um, th they'll listen. They, they will listen. Uh, if, if, if done right, they will listen. Um, I'm well after the top of the hour and y'all are just going all on this. So, um, 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 maybe, maybe we'll come back and talk about it some more, but I'm, I'm like so far behind you. There's no way I'm going to get caught up here. Um, and so, Anyway, maybe we can talk about this again some tomorrow when my dad's here. He may have more insight than I do. Let me let me rephrase that. He'll have more insight. He'll have more insight than I do. <laughs> anyway, great discussion this morning, everybody. Thank you for the questions, uh, uh, Travis and Jonathan, uh, and and so many more comments in there. Um, just uh, appreciate you. Lo love you all for what y'all do with us. I need to stop though because we're already five, five past the top of the hour. And I do need to get to the uh, the actual Bible study or the, the textual Bible study. I guess technically we're the actual Bible study, like we haven't been doing that for the last hour, um, to get to the uh, the textual portion of our study here. So give me just a couple minutes and I'll get the room uh, reset as best I can. And we will turn my attention back to First Peter here uh, momentarily. Be right back with you shortly.
everybody welcome back to the second end or second hour from the deep end i'm still playing around with the countdown timers and stuff on this new platform that one i just used the first several notes of that of that little jingle they play sounds like to me a cross between sanford and son and seinfeld the theme, the theme music to those those songs so that's what i'm thinking when i and I, when i when i uh hear that every time so anyway th welcome back we're going to turn our attention now to a, a study of um um uh, first Peter is where we are. Let's turn the screen share back on. Well, actually, let me just go ahead and get it over into First Peter. Um, and we will go from there. Pop that thing back up on the screen and make myself small. There we go. I'm small in the corner. Let's go. All right. First Peter, chapter one. We were down in about verse seven or eight is what we had been uh, talking about. Uh, spent a lot of time yesterday talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, not going to rehash all of that because... It would, if I open that can of worms, I'm going to feel like I need to explain myself again, and I'm not going to, uh, but I do believe that revelation of Jesus Christ there is talking about his revelation at the end of, um, at the end of the great tribulation. So I do think that's probably a reference to the events, um, in and around, uh, AD 70. Um, and that is, um, uh, what I, I think he's talking to here, here about, or talking to here about that's a weird sentence. Let me try that the third time. In this place, that's what he is talking about to his audience, which are largely Jews. Hey, that, that one worked better. Give me three, three chances on any sentence, and I can come up with something that'll work. Um, but here we are in, in verse number eight. Uh, we were, obviously, we're talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, that word revelation is just what that means. It, it means an appearance uh, of the revelation, and he kind of plays on that in verse number eight. So he says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him. All right, so, so there's that kind of interplay of the words there. He's going to be revealed. He's going to be seen, though now, he says, you have not seen him. Okay, so you have not seen him, and yet uh, he says here uh, that you love him. Uh, and so you do love him. That is the, the word agape. That, that, that's the form of the word there. So he's not talking about the, um, uh, the, the, the warm uh, expressive kind of love. He's, he's talking about the respectful form of love, usually resulting in some kind of service. Okay, so Paul or Peter rather does establish um, their their love for him, their dedication to him. He believes earlier in the the tested genuineness of their faith, so he has confidence in these individuals. He says, "You love him," and though he's and then he says in verse eight, "Though now you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory." obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, okay? Um, so he, he is reminding them, I believe, and this is, I believe, the construction this year. The words here aren't that particularly difficult. It's, it's trying to, why, why this sentence here? I mean, you run through here, obviously, they could, the, the actual facts of the case, all right? Let's just do that real quick, okay? They, they obviously have not seen him. He's ascended back to heaven. They cannot actually see him in that regard. 
Uh, but they had faith. They believed in him, that genuine faith that he just talked about a verse before. Uh, they are rejoicing with joy, and that joy that joy is inexpressible, um, um, and it is filled with glory. All right? So they're, they, they're obviously uh, uh, happy with the salvation that they have, happy with the, what, the, what, the, what they have done. Uh, they understand the promise of the glory that is to be revealed, the glory that's inherent in the life that they have, and uh, they understand what they are obtaining is the, is the outcome of their faith, which is ultimately the salvation. <coughs> excuse me, the salvation of their souls. But how does that relate um, to the things that he has already said? And that, to me, that's the critical part here about the end of verse number eight. Okay. There's a lot here that we could just spend a lot of time talking about, a lot of devotional type stuff that we could spend time talking about here, and and that would be a very good, a very worthy uh, discussion to have. I mean, we could we could talk about the concept of how our joy is inexpressible. Uh, we could talk about you know I like that phrase rejoicing with joy. I don't know what other kind of rejoicing there is, but rejoicing with joy. Uh, I, I like that uh, I like that phrase uh, there. Um, but um, um, the um, the out, outcome of the faith, uh, obviously, that that's the goal, that's the aim of, of faith, and it is the salvation of the souls. And I think here he is actually talking about, uh, I think he's actually here talking about the the actual soul, the actual salvation of the soul, uh, the eternal salvation. Um, I believe that to be the case. Um, the other reference to salvation is the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So what's the connection between that in verse number five, I suppose? The argument from five all the way down through eight, or end of seven, now into eight, about now obtaining the salvation of the souls. All right. I said I wasn't going to rehash all that material, and now I feel like I need to rehash some of that material. <laughs> That's not what I want to do right now. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The... The, um, the the realized eschatology doctrine that I talk about often, and I have to because I have some similarity similarity to it, and but I don't believe it, um, and I always feel like if people hear me just one time, they might believe, depending on which lesson they hear, that I'm a part of that crowd, and I am most definitely, most certainly not a part of that crowd. So anytime I get onto this topic, I always feel like I need to clarify things, and that's why it takes so long. Um, and that's not necessarily fair to the people that watch and listen all the time. But the, the realized eschatology doctrine, as I understand it, does not believe in the reality of, of salvation until at least AD 70. Okay? Um, they would take, I believe it is John 5, um, the resurrection that is talked about there in John 5, and they do believe, what, 528 or so, um, that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, and that that resurrection there, and then the, the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and that resurrection there, they take that as one resurrection. I think it's two. They, they take it as one, both of them spiritual resurrections. Right now, they would also then tie that back to Daniel chapter twelve. I'm trying to do this quickly, so I'm not going to explain everything. But in time, Daniel chapter twelve, we have a time of great trouble that um, is going to arise, and that time of great trouble, he says, 
such as never has been since it was a nation till that time. Okay, Jesus emphasizes it more fully and says, nor ever will be. But at that time, the people shall be delivered. Okay, and it's here that it says, they, they who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Um, and um, as Daniel looks for an ex, ex, explanation of this passage or of this vision, verse number nine Daniel is told to go his own way, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Okay? The time of the end, the realized eschatologist, and I actually agree on this point, the time of the end, the realized eschatologist would say, is a reference to the end of the age, AD 70-ish. Okay? As they then point to the 1290 days or the three and a half years that are here in Daniel and also in the book of Revelation and so on. Okay, so what they believe is at the time of the end, at the end of the age, there was ultimately um, with a, well, there's your, your, again, your time, times, and half a times. There's the shattering of the power of the holy people. And remember how we talked yesterday about Daniel 7. Daniel refers to the, the, the power of the, the, the saints of the Most High and all of that. Uh, these are individuals uh, who are, um, um, well, these these Old Testament Jews. So the, the, the power of the Jews is going to be broken. Um, all these things would be finished. All of this is pointing into AD 70. And they would say then, in AD 70, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There's going to be a resurrection. So they believe the spiritual resurrection for them, for them, death in the Bible is essentially always spiritual. They believe that the spiritual resurrection occurred in AD 70. So prior to AD 70, people were baptized. But in a rough analogy, the best, best way I can, maybe I can understand it, um, the best way I can help you understand it is that, uh, you know, w- when we talk about the Old Testament law, some people will hold to the position that the sins were not actually forgiven, but then they, when Jesus came and his and his blood was shed, it flowed backwards and covered the sins before the cross. And it was the 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 offering of Jesus that actually forgave the sins of the Old Testament. That's kind. It's a rough. First of all, I don't necessarily agree with that. I would I would phrase that differently. But um, that's a, a rough analogy to how the realized eschatologist looks at the de- the time between AD thirty and AD seventy where people were being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. They were being added to the kingdom. But they take that phrase over in Mark chapter 9. Um, Mark chapter 9, 9 verse 1. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God come uh, after it ha- uh, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Um they take that, we, we usually point that to AD number two, uh, Acts chapter two, right? You shall receive power from on high. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Acts chapter one, verse, what is that, 10 or so? Um, we normally put, point that to Acts two. They don't. They point that down to um, uh, AD 70. And um, one of the reasons they say that is, he said, Jesus says, I truly say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they sing the kingdom of God that comes with power. They take that to say, well, that implies that at least some, maybe even most of the people standing there would have already died. Okay. 
the, the, the number of people who died between Mark 9 and Acts 1, uh, Judas, you know, of, of the potential people that he might be talking to, maybe Judas would be the only one you would uh, would cover. The rest of them were alive. So why wouldn't he say most or even all, depending on whether or not Judas was there? Okay, so that's that's one of the arguments they make is that um, um, the 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 word some would indicate that people might still be alive. But their point being, they would admit the kingdom comes in in Acts chapter two. They don't deny that, but the kingdom does not come with power. All right, and what power is that? Specifically, the power of that 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 is is the power of the spiritual resurrection. It actually occurs starting in AD 70. All right, that's my basic understanding of where they are. Um, and while I don't have this on the top of my head, my guess would be um, they are when they talk about this inheritance of yours is being guarded by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, they would argue that the salvation that's here or the, you know the the salvation of, of of baptism starting in AD 30 is not power empowered it's not legitimate it's not real until AD 70 and so then they would also say down here the revelation of Jesus Christ would happen again at AD 70 and while you don't see him and you do not see him now you will when he comes in judgment and you believe in him you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible filled with glory and now when you see him at the completion of his revelation, you will receive the outcome of your faith, which is actually the salvation of your souls. So they would say that this in verse 9, at least I think they would. I don't know that I've ever read them on this. I'm surmising from what I know, so don't quote me on that as authoritative. Um, but you see how they, that, that, they're going to push that down until AD 70. Okay. My counter argument would that would be for that is that sins are forgiven very clearly, sins are washed away, sins are remitted over and over again uh, th throughout throughout even First Peter chapter three. Here, when we talk about it, um, is going to talk about baptism. Baptism does now also save us, not 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 after eighty seventy. Baptism saves us now. Okay, so so salvation is a reality. Book of First John, you have eternal life. I'm writing these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So you have it. It's not prospective. It's not in the future. You have it. All that is waiting for here is salvation is ready to be not empowered. It's already empowered. Okay. It's ready to be revealed. The world is going to know it. And that's why we went to first Timothy two yesterday that the, 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 the Jesus self gave him a ransom for all ready to be testified of in due time. Uh, Romans chapter eight. Uh, it, it is not the case that the, uh, um, uh, uh, the statement there in Romans 8, let me go ahead and go back and read it. I was about to butcher that. Let me go back and read it just to make sure I don't get <clears throat> too far off, off base. Um, verse 19, the creation waits with eager, either eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay. They're not, they're not going to become the sons of God. It is the revealing of who is a son of God. Uh, and again, there's two camps, the Judaizer and the, and, and the person that follows the true gospel that Paul brought that are uh, in play here. And so that, that I believe, is what's being talked about here. It's not, it's not the reality of it. It's the revealing of it. It's the completion of the mystery. 
It is the sounding of the seventh angel in Revelation chapter 10, the mystery of God. It is finished. Uh, it is the first uh, uh, John chapter two with the coming of the Antichrist. The darkness is already passing away. It's all of that. Okay. It is, it is the redemption of the church out of Judaism, Luke chapter 21. All of those things are, are, are about the declaration of it, the manifestation of it, not about the reality. The reality is at this point, Jesus is already King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's already, when he returned to the Father, he received the glory and the greatness and dominion of a kingdom. So he has it all. And, and he, he can't have it without the kingdom being what it's supposed to be. And so it's it's there in its fullness and in its power. It just has not been made clear yet. It hasn't been testified to yet. And that's what Matthew 24, we went there yesterday. See, I am rehashing all that stuff. I wasn't going to say, I said I wasn't going to rehash. But that's why Matthew 24, 15 says the God, this gospel of the kingdom, don't forget that word, this. It's not the gospel. It is this gospel. The proclamation of the end of Judaism, of the end of the age, is good news for the kingdom. Why? Luke 21, for when that happens, when the vultures surround the, cor the corpse of Judaism and they begin to pick its flesh clean, what it's going to do is it's going to reveal that which cannot be shaken, that which cannot be moved. It's going to reveal that stone which is going to fill the whole earth as I just blend blended Hebrews chapter 12 and Daniel chapter 2 into that into that metaphor, okay? When the vultures gathered and plucked away the corpse of Judaism, what they uncovered was the true power underneath it, which was the church that grew out of it, the, 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 the grafted in branches to bring in the metaphor of Romans 11. They all fit together, okay? So it's already there. It's already glorious. It's already powerful. All we're waiting for is the revealing of it, all right? So, that salvation is here. It's just not made clear. Now, First Peter is dealing with exactly the same problem. I've written to you that you may understand that you that you you are standing in the true grace of God as opposed to the counterfeit grace of God. You've made the right choice. We've been emphasizing that so far in our study of the first chapter here. Okay, and, and I know we're spending a lot of time in these opening verses that we will, as I said about Romans 8, once we get through Romans 8, this will pick up. This will pick up. But I want to make sure we understand the connections here. Peter is writing to a very specific group of people. And of those people, or to those people rather, he is trying to make a very specific point. You've made the right choice. And so even though now you cannot see him, that vision that you have about what, whether or not you've made the right choice, that vision is not, is not full. You can't see it clearly. You can't see him clearly. You believe him even though you can't see him. All right? Keep that in contrast to what others would be saying. Is that in Matthew, um, Matthew 24? It's in one of the accounts. I think maybe in Matthew. It could be in Mark. Um, uh, no, no, no. Here. It is, it's in Matthew, maybe in all of them. Um, Matthew 24, uh, starting verse 22. Um, um, well, verse starting 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world unto now, now, no, now uh, will there ever be, okay? And if those days had not been cut short, no human would have been saved. But for the elect's sake, the days will be cut short, right? Now, historical reference here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn the overlay off. I see some people saying that the chat is blurry and y'all talk a lot during the first hour. 
when I start to teach the text, for some reason, y'all don't talk as much. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. Um, let's see which one I like the best. I'm still trying to figure that out on StreamYard. Let, let me just go with this one. That makes the text as big as possible. So maybe that maybe that'll be better for those who are having a hard time reading it. Um, but a little bit of a historical reference here as well. Um, the um, what I believe this period is talking about here is there was a period of time. There were there were actually essentially two wars over uh, over Israel between during the Jewish rebellion. In the middle 60s AD, just, just prior to the death of Nero, the general over the armies, of, over the Roman legions, that led the invasion of Palestine or Israel was a man by the name of Vespasian. He began it. There were, had, a, had a setback or two, but was beginning to win the war. Um, and then Nero dies. What, what year is that? I think 66, 67 Nero dies, something like that. I think he reigned from 64 to 67, maybe if I'm, I'm doing that off the top of my head again. Somebody knows the exact dates, correct me on that. I will not be upset. Um, oh, well, obviously, Vespasian has the Roman legions at his back. Uh, and if you've got the army, you get to be the next emperor. That's pretty much the case. But he's in, he's in Israel. It takes a while to march an army from Israel back to Rome. During that time, there were three people who claimed the throne. Uh, I can't, can't remember the order, but it's Otho, uh, Galba, and Vitellius, I believe are their names. Uh, ultimately, when Vespasian gets back, I think they, I think one had already murdered, or maybe one had, I think one had murdered the other, and then I think it's when Vespasian gets that back, I think he finally puts down the, the third and puts down the, those arrival claimants to the throne. I do think, by the way, that is what um, Daniel 7 is talking about when he talks about the little horn he will pluck up three of the ten horns before him, uh, and and so on. So I do think the little horn is probably Vespasian. But the Roman armies left. They had if they hadn't left, they would have just moved in and destroyed destroyed Israel and Jerusalem in one in one campaign. But they left. Two things happened. I believe it's Josephus, and I don't know the reference off the top of my head. Again, ask my dad tomorrow. He could probably tell you the page that it's on in, 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 in Josephus's writings. Um, yeah, he, he studies like that. Um, I believe it's during that time. I believe it's Josephus that says, during that period of time, after Vespasian left, all the Christians fled Jerusalem. <coughs> okay? Also, during that time, there's a reprieve from the Roman invasion. It is also a time in which many of the Jews began to think, hey, we won. And um, nationalism, we would call it today, apparently rose in Israel for a time. I believe that's what's being talked about right here. Okay? After this happens, great tribulation is going to come, but... <coughs> The days of those tribulations are going to be cut short. It's going to be a reprieve. The, the, the final uh, um, uh, assault is not going to happen, not immediately. Those days are going to be cut short. If that weren't the case, nobody would make it out alive because you wouldn't have time to run. 
but because God wants to give the elect time to get out. Those days will be cut short. Okay? That next word is very important. Then. When. Well, I'm going to say the when of the then is right there in verse 22. At that point when the days were cut short, the Roman armies have left. To a nationalistic Jew, it looks like, hey, maybe we won. Maybe we threw off Roman rule, right? What was the desire even of the disciples of Jesus? Or what was not the desire? What was the expectation, even sometimes within the disciples of Jesus, that the Christ, the Messiah, would do? Well, he would restore the kingdom to Israel. He would throw off Roman rule. Well, now you have leaders of, 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 of resistance fighters. Maybe you've got generals. I don't know who the people were. I have no idea. But you would have characters in that midst when the Roman armies pulled out. Guess what a, an opportunistic, ambitious individual might say? I did that. I did that. Thank you. You're welcome. And by claiming that he was the individual responsible for throwing off Roman rule, for expelling the Romans from Israel, what title would you give him? Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. If an individual during the time that the tribulation is cut short were to stand up and to say, that was me, I did that. You might call him the Messiah. You might call him the Christ, the anointed one, who threw the Romans and restored the throne of threw the Romans out and restored the throne of David. That's my, what you might call him. You might call him the Christ. And there might be people in Israel pointing you to say, do you see what he did? That's our dude right there. That's the guy that led us to freedom. And Jesus says, when those days are cut short, then if anyone says that, don't listen to them. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say he's in the room, in a rooms, do not believe it. See, I have told you beforehand. There will arise people claiming to be the Christ. But in reality, they are false Christs. If perchance 
Christine says he died, Nero died in 68. Thank you, Christine. If perchance, perchance, somebody arises during this cut short period and claims to be the Christ, and you asked him about Jesus, what would this person claiming to be the Christ say about Jesus? Let's just play a game here. Come and ask me. I'm, I'm claiming to be Jonathan the, the Christ who, who threw Vespasian out of Israel. And you come and ask me, well, what about Jesus of Nazareth? Might I say? Where is he? He's not here. Where is the promise of his coming? Might I actually say, 30, 40 years later, did he actually come in the flesh? Was he actually here? Was he actually who he claimed to be? Where is he now? What would that make me? Would that make me neutral toward Jesus? Would that make me, or so, so therefore say, ambivalent toward Christ, neutral Christ? Would that make me pro-Christ? I'm for Christ. No. You know that would, what that would make me? I got a great idea here. You know what that might make me? You think it might make me anti-Christ? Just throwing that out there. Then might, might might that make me somebody who would deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Maybe. Might I begin to say all manner of things to try and lead astray even the elect to pick off his followers? Maybe. See, I think that was the dynamic that was at play here. As Peter writes, 1 Peter, we are a couple of years away from Jews. When the days of the tribulation are cut short, rising up, claiming to be the Christ, with their acolytes claiming that this person is the Christ, the false prophets, trying to perform, like Simon perhaps, great wonders, great signs and great wonders, claiming to be the Christ, trying to lead astray the, even the very elect, and saying, if you'll just go out into the wilderness, he's there. If you go look in the inner rooms, that's where you'll find the real Christ. Jesus says, don't you worry about it, or as lightning comes out of the east and shines to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, the, 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 the vultures will gather. He says to them, oh, when I come, you'll know. You, you won't have to have somebody tell you, oh, he's over here or he's over there. When you see the vultures surrounding the corpse, and, he's, and then Luke's account will tell you, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that the desolation thereof is nigh. He says, when I come, you'll know. You won't need somebody to tell you, I will let you know I'm here. But before that, there's going to be a period of time 
when false Christs and false prophets will arise to try to deceive you about who the Christ actually is. Have you read the book of Revelation? Have you read the book of 2 Thessalonians? The whole idea of the mystery of lawlessness? Because the mystery of godliness we know from 1 Timothy 3.16. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the Christ, we know that one, right? We've talked about it at length in our studies here together. We know what the mystery of the Christ was. We know what the mystery of the gospel is. Here is the mystery of lawlessness. It's almost like the mystery of lawlessness might be antithetical to the mystery of godliness or the mystery of the gospel. It's antithetical to it. It might be, what's another word for antithetical? What's the anti? Anti. Might actually be that. Oh, I wonder if that's connected. Just throw that out there. But when this man of lawlessness comes, the man of sin comes, come, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. And guess what? With all power and false signs and wonders, and guess what this individual does? He opposes himself, he opposes God and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I am the Christ. And I sit in the temple sit in the seat of God, and I'm actually the one working the mystery of lawlessness. I don't know who it was, but I believe, can't prove this, Jonathan 101, one more time, right? I believe this is all connected. Antichrist, false Christ, lo, I am the Christ, man of sin, not working the mystery of godliness, but working the mystery of lawlessness, sitting in the temple, I believe he's connected to Judaism. When you come across the harlot, where is this in Revelation? Um, it's not 10, is it? Um, come on, where is it? Where is it? Um, well, I thought it was in 10. It's not. Where is the harlot that's riding upon the beast? Boy, there it is. There it is. Da, 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 da. Um, oh, come on, Jonathan. Just drawing a complete blank here. The name, the name written on her forehead. Where is that? It can't be, can't be that far down, can it? Oh, come on, Jonathan. Um, can't be all the way down in like 16, 17, can it? We have Babylon, destruction of Babylon. Urgh. There it is. Okay, sorry. It's it's 17. I, it, that, I, I was trying not to get it into 17, but it was. Okay, here we have the woman sitting on the scarlet beast that was full of blasphemies. And it had seven heads, seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold jewels and pearls, holding in her hand uh, a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes, and the earth's abominations. Written on her head, and there's our word again, was a name of mystery. And what is that mystery? This woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Go back to Matthew chapter 23. Jesus says, I am going to send to you prophets, wise men, and scribes. 
It's into you, Jerusalem. Some of them you will crucify. Some of them you will flog in the, in the synagogues and persecute them from town to town so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of Zechariah, righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barkiah, who will be murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. All these things will come upon this generation. And her was found the blood of all the prophets, of all the apostles, all the martyrs. Now, that's talking about, that's talking about Jerusalem. Okay? So, this false Christ, the appearance of the Christ, people claiming to be the Christ, all of that. All of that seems to me to be tied together, which takes us back over here to 1 Peter in just a second. Keep in mind what I'm trying to get you to see here. To the Jews, to the elect, and notice how that phrase keeps being used in Matthew 24. For the elect's sake, he's going to deceive even the very elect. Okay, he's trying to lead the, the, the saints of saints away. He's trying to, to take the elect away from God. Primarily Jewish there. They were about to go through a period of time where people were saying, here is the Christ. Here is the one to lead us to victory. Here is the one to lead us to the promised land or to restore the promised land. Here's the one. Go out to the desert, look in the inner room. He's right over there. Go find him. Contrast that to what Peter is saying right here. Though you have not seen him, and you do not see him now. See, here is the Christ. That's literally what Jesus said. When this happens, when the days are shortened, people will say, see, here is the Christ. Peter's point is, you don't see him now. Jesus then says, so remember that I told you this beforehand. 2 Peter 3. As Peter is writing the second letter to this group of people, remember what he says? I am stirring you up by your sincere by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through the apostles, knowing this, that first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. False Christ and false prophets will arise. See, I have told you this beforehand. When it happens, know that it's true. That's why Paul tells Timothy, in the last days, a fallen away, an apostasy must occur. Jesus said it would. That's why it has to happen. What would cause, or at least be part of that, of that apostasy, was people would say to the elect, the people that Peter is writing to, the elect of the dispersion, people would say to the elect, there's the Christ. That's the real one, not Jesus. He did it. We always thought, we always knew the Messiah would restore the kingdom to Israel and would throw off Roman rule, and this guy out there in the desert is the one responsible for the victory we just won. It's Hebrews chapter 6. Okay, you're going to deceive, he's going to deceive the elect. Peter said, or Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, says about Hebrews 6 and verse 4, it is impossible in the case in those who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word to come, and the powers of the age to come, 
and then they have fallen away to restore them to, to repentance. Okay, doesn't say it's impossible for them to repent. It is possible to restore them again, to renew them to repentance. That's different than saying it's impossible to repent. But why is it impossible to, to renew them? How, how is it that you're not going to be able to renew them, to call them to repentance? Not because it's impossible for the heart to hear the gospel. The heart can always hear the gospel. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Let me ask you a question. Who are they replacing him with? Why are they just doing that to be spiteful? Why would Hebrews, Hebrew Christians, in Christine has Nero dying in 68. Great. So Vespasian returns, secures the throne. So 68 into 70, we have a, we have a, a return of Titus and the, and the final defeat of Jerusalem. In that gap between when Vespasian leaves and Titus comes back, in that gap, what's happening? Jesus says the tribulation has been cut short and people are saying, there is the Christ. These are Hebrew Christians. Where do you think they live? Probably somewhere around the Hebrews. Probably somewhere around Jerusalem. Somewhere around Jerusalem, Jesus says, see, I have told you beforehand. People are going to come and say the Christ is right there. Christians? Who have been who have been enlightened? These, I believe, these are all statements of those who have been prophetically gifted. So these are long-term Christians, people that should have been teachers by now. These are mature Christians. I think the Old King James uses the phrase "even the very elect" in Matthew twenty-four. These people, they could be led astray by the Christ, the false Christ in the wilderness or in the inner room. And, and the Hebrews writer says to these Christians, there or about these Christians rather, it's going to be impossible to renew them to repentance, seeing they've killed Jesus again and they hold him up to contempt. Why? I have an answer. Again, a little bit of Jonathan 101 here, but here's how I piece this together. You have given your life 30 years, 40 years, nearly 40 years to serving Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And you keep waiting for the kingdom to be restored to Israel. You keep waiting for all of these blessings to happen. And now all of a sudden, a group of people claiming that position have pushed back on Roman authority and Vespasian has left. Israel, Jerusalem is now free. And here is a person claiming to be the Christ and you believe it. In order to believe that that person in the wilderness or in the inner room is the Christ, what has to go through your mind? What's the process that you have to do with Jesus? Why was he put on the cross in the first place? Because people heard him claim to be the Messiah and said, he's no king of ours. And so we're going to put him back on that cross, and we're going to hold him in contempt as anybody who hangs on that tree is cursed. I have made up my mind. This man in the wilderness is the Christ, not Jesus. And since I've done that, I'm going to go throw my lot in with this Christ. Great. What's about, what's about to happen next as we turn the page of history? 
Titus is about to come back. And you're not getting out this time. See that you don't go out there. Don't go out there. You go out there, you're going to die with them. And that's exactly what follows. They have held the Son of Man open to contempt for the land that has drunk the rain often. What land drunk the rain often from God? How about Israel? about the Jews? Produces a crop useful to those who see, for, who, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing. Had the chance to be blessed. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being cursed. The rain has fallen upon it often. You have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, long-term Christians, have received all of the blessings of the gospel in that age, access to the Holy Spirit, access to revelation, you have been so on. You have given everything that God has given you. You've had it all. And now you have fallen for the false Christ in the wilderness. And you've left the camp. You've thrown away your confidence. You've turned back into perdition, to use some of the other language from Hebrews. You hold Jesus now in contempt. You continue to sin willfully, to go back to chapter 10 again. You, that's what you do. You have trodden underfoot the Son of God. That's what you've done. Okay, the rain of God's blessings fell on you, often. And you were supposed to put forth a useful crop, bear fruit in my vineyard, but you didn't. Instead, you bore thorns and thistles. What do you think I'm going to do to you? You're worthless, and the time of your cursing is drawing near. The reason it's going to be impossible to renew these people to repentance is, number one, if you're a faithful Christian, when you saw Jerusalem encircled with armies, you left. You got out of town. And there are no faithful Christians left in Jerusalem. So quite literally, who's going to be there to renew these people who have hold Jesus to, up into contempt? Who's going to be there to teach them the gospel? Nobody because the faithful have left. And the day of the cursing is drawing near, and God says, I'm about to burn the place down. And when I do, all of you that obeyed the Christ and believed in him, but then fell away at the last moment to follow a false Christ, Follow a false Christ. All of you are going to die painfully. There's no hope left. That's the warning of First Peter. You have a salvation that's about to be revealed. 
you're about to be vindicated in your pick. Don't let the fact that you cannot see him now dissuade you. There are going to be people on the scene very soon who say, see, you can see us. We're here. The false Christ, I believe John refers to them as Antichrist. I believe somewhere in there, there's a ringleader. I think it's probably an individual. I don't know who it is. That is the man of sin who sets himself up in the temple. There's a singular person who sets himself up as this new Christ. I have no idea who. Connected to Judaism, connected to the temple. He sends out false prophets with lying wonders and signs to try and deceive the elect. That's what Matthew says, 24 says. That's what 2 Thessalonians 2 says. Obviously, that's throughout the book of Revelation. Something's going on there where a, 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 a group of Christ or a, excuse me, a singular leader perhaps is claiming this throne, trying to deceive the very elect. The Hebrews writer says, don't you dare throw away your confidence. Peter says, you need to understand you're standing in the true grace. And even though you cannot see him, you need to keep loving him. Because you do not see him now, although you will, as lightning shines from the east to the west, if you just hang on to your confidence, you're going to see this gospel of the kingdom preached as a witness among all nations before the end comes. Here is Peter preaching it one more time. Hang on. Your salvation is ready to be revealed, and by continuing to love him and continuing not to turn away from him, you are validating and vindicating your faith. If you throw away your confidence now, you will draw back into perdition and be destroyed. Hebrews chapter 10. Hang on to it. Obtain what you have given your life for, which is ultimately the salvation of your souls. But in order to secure that salvation, which is already being guarded for you, which is already yours to have, it is your inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It is kept, it is reserved, it is fortified in heaven for you. All you have to do is endure the testing of your faith to show that it's genuine. Make it through the days of your tribulation, even though you can't see him. Keep on loving him. I believe that's the subtle argument behind these words. This is the true grace. Even though it's not tangible, even though you can't see him, keep on keeping on. Because the, the revelation of that salvation is at hand right now. Do not throw away your confidence. Prepare your mind for action. Be sober. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a day coming soon. Stand firm until the end. And that grace, that blessing, that vindication of faith is going to come to you when this, this tribulation is over. That's what I believe he's talking about here in the opening, opening verses of 1 Peter. All right? So that gets us basically through the end of verse number 9. Lord willing, we will pick up tomorrow here in verse number 7 to continue our study of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Certainly appreciate uh, your um, uh, participate, participation, particularly in the first hour of the program, and I hope you found something of benefit to uh, consider uh, in our look at First Peter uh, this morning. So uh, do not forget that we have LaBeth Brewer coming up at 2 o'clock, and make sure you check all of your inboxes and all that kind of stuff for the links to the um, uh, special room that she's going to have to continue her session 
uh, after her show, uh, well, she starts at two, so sometime around three, that other, uh, that second session, uh, the after show, if you will, with Labeth is going to uh, take place. So uh, it's on our Facebook page, should be on our, lo- it's already on our locals page. Um, and those who are members of the website, uh, I'll send the email out here just as soon as we get off the air. And you should have that uh, here in the next uh, 15 or 20 minutes or so. So uh, be on the lookout for that. And uh, I look forward to being back here with you. Well, off tonight. So I look forward to being back here with you uh, tomorrow at um, 8 a.m. as we continue our study together. Thank you once again. And everybody go out and make your day great for God. See you back tomorrow.